Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Joe? Doing well. We're also joined with Rich Lenkoff, Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, how's it going? Doing well, Joe. Excited for a big show today. Absolutely. Let's get right into the biggest topics lately. The Donald Trump investigation. We're almost hitting a year anniversary of the death on the Alec Baldwin movie set. And with the biggest topics, we bring in our biggest guest, professor and distinguished lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, also a friend of the podcast with a new book out. It's number 50, The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. He joins us today. Mr. Dershowitz, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks. It's my 50th book, so I'm celebrating. I'm waiting to get to 100, but uh, that's that's unlikely. I've done 50 in 60 years, so just do the math. By the end of the podcast, I'm hopeful you'll, you'll announce the completion of 51. Uh, we're, we're almost there. There. Uh, professor, so you, what about ism? I'll admit that's not a term I've heard before, but you use that term to compare what you considered unequal treatment between Hillary Clinton's dealing with emails and how Trump has been treated by the FBI. Explain that, what that means. Well, it's actually Hillary Clinton and others uh, who are against Trump who use that term. They use it in a derogatory way. Uh, because if people say, oh my God, look, uh, Trump shouldn't have been searched. Hillary Clinton wasn't uh, searched so extensively. The answer they got is, oh, well, that's whataboutism. That's just a terrible argument, whataboutism. So I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal defending whataboutism. I think in America, committed to the rule of law, you should always ask what about. You know, when a person is prosecuted and somebody else isn't for the same alleged defense, well, what about that other person? What about Sandy Berger? putting classified material in his sock. What about Hillary Clinton having servers in her home? Why are we having a special rule for a Republican that doesn't apply to Democrats? This comes, of course, from a liberal Democrat who voted against Donald Trump twice and is anxious to make sure he doesn't get disqualified from running a third time because I have an absolute right to vote against him again, which I plan to do. So where do you think all this, this whole thing is going with the Trump investigation? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of press. He's under fire in a number of different respects. Where do you think this is all headed? Well, I think it's heading toward an attempt by Democrats to preclude him from running. Again, some Republicans will join that as well. Uh, he's not particularly popular among centrist, uh, uh, genuine conservatives. So it's an attempt to try to disqualify him from running. It won't work under the Constitution because there are only four criteria for running for president. He's 35, he was born in America, he didn't fight in the Civil War against the Union, and he was not convicted and had the Senate say that he can't uh, uh, run for office. So even if he was in jail, he would uh, be able to run for president. And that would be pretty unusual, although Mayor Curley in Massachusetts uh, did that. Professor, tomorrow a judge will decide whether this affidavit, this now most famous affidavit maybe in the history of law, will be unsealed. Trump wants it unsealed. The DOJ says, DOJ says it should remain sealed. 
I saw you on Hannity, maybe last night, Fox News somewhere, explaining why, uh, what your feelings are of the affidavit. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, it should be unsealed, redacted. It should be allowed, the public should be allowed to see it with names, perhaps taken off of uh, confidential informants, uh, of uh, maybe FBI agents. Uh, it should, uh, there, there always should be a presumption in favor of producing material. Let the government then come back and demonstrate why particular words, phrases, and should be eliminated. You know, in my book, The Price of Principle, which we'll talk about later, one of the principles that I've always lived by has been if you have a dispute between two people, one of them wants everything to come out and the other one wants to keep a secret, generally you should believe the person who wants everything to come out. And so I want everything to come out. I don't want there to be any secrets. I want there to be transparency. If the government demands secrecy as to some things, let a judge decide. Maybe it's because I was one of the lawyers in the Pentagon Papers case. Remember that case? Long, long time ago. In that case, the Solicitor General of the United States, a very honorable man, the former dean of the Harvard Law School, Erwin Griswold, represented to the Supreme Court that if the content of the Pentagon Papers are revealed, the country will suffer a terrible national security uh, disaster. And of course, the Pentagon Papers were revealed and nothing happened. And that's very common for the government to claim the need for secrecy when the need for secrecy uh, in the end uh, was not apparent. So, Professor, let's pivot for a second to talk about Alec Baldwin and the investigation into what happened on the set of Rust a year ago. It's been back in the news recently. There have been several developments, and you've been quoted as discussing the um, the distinction between the civil and criminal liability issues with regard to that situation. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Well, I was involved in the prior two cases uh, involving movie deaths. I was one of the lawyers for John Landis. You remember the helicopter that crashed and killed Vic Morrow and two children. That case went to trial, a multi-month trial, and we want to complete acquittal in that case. So it was nobody's fault. I mean, the helicopter fell, and it could have pushed one way or the other way. If it had fallen in one direction, it would have killed John Landis. It fell in the other direction, and it killed Vic Morrow. Uh, just because there is a death, even a tragic death, even a death with fault, uh, that doesn't mean there's criminal liability. There was civil liability, obviously. And the other case that I was involved in was uh, the shooting in, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was one of the Carolinas, maybe, uh, in, in the making of a movie where a, um, a, a sliver of a bullet had been left in the barrel, and when it was shot, it, the sliver went into the heart and, and killed him. And again, there was civil liability, the case was settled, but we persuaded prosecutors not to bring the case. I do not think there will be a criminal prosecution. Uh, in, in this case, there obviously is going to be civil liability, and there ought to be changes in the rules. No gun ever should be allowed anywhere near a movie set. And apparently in that case, people were shooting guns uh, in the woods, real guns. It, it just, it sh separation of church and state, separation of guns and movies. Uh, that's what I'm in favor of. Professor, I had forgotten that you were involved in the Vic Morrow case. That's fascinating. I mean, right. you, know, you have represented some of the most famous defendants in American jurisprudence history, right? Obviously, O.J. Simpson, uh, uh, Klaus von Bülow, right? That was a but only once did the following happen. So I sat next to the daughter of the former president of the United States, Caroline Kennedy, at a dinner party. This is the, the daughter of the man who wrote Profiles in Courage. 
And she said to me, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come, essentially telling me that she would never be in the same room with me. This is the ambassador to Australia who has to stand up to the leader of China, the leader of North Korea, and she can't be in the same room as somebody who defended a president of the United States. I would have defended John Kennedy as well. I defended Bill Clinton, and um, I've defended many, many Democrats. But you get intolerant uh, leftists like Caroline Kennedy uh, who cannot abide the idea that uh, a lawyer would actually defend the constitutional rights of, of, of Donald Trump against an unconstitutional impeachment. And one of the reasons I wrote The Price of Principle is I'm getting that all over. I've been banned from the library. I've been banned from the Hebrew Center. I've been banned from the, you know, you name it, uh, just because of who I represented. Uh, imagine how they would treat John Adams. if He came to Martha's Vineyard, the man who defended the people accused of the Boston Massacre. It's just McCarthyism. It's just, I remember McCarthyism of the right during the 1950s. This is just a repeat of McCarthyism from the left. I want to ask you the library, but before that, I just was really curious because, you know, you mentioned representing all these famous people. I mean, everyone from the sitting president to O.J. Simpson, we just are coming off one of the most, you know, maybe the most watched trial in history, the Johnny Depp trial. How challenging is it? Maybe you could explain to our listeners some, some inside baseball. What are some of the challenges involved in representing famous people, both in terms of how the jury perceives them, how the media deals with them, and how you as an, an attorney uh, puts all that noise out to just represent the person sitting next to you? Well, you don't put the noise out. Uh, you understand that there is that noise. You make motions to change the venue. You make motions to delay the trial. Um, you take into account what people are thinking. You make sure that you adapt to the realities of of what's uh, happening. Uh, one of the big issues involving both the Johnny Depp case and of course, the Donald Trump litigations is where the trial takes place. There's an enormous difference as to whether the trial takes place in Virginia or in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., anybody associated with Donald Trump, especially Donald Trump, cannot get a fair trial. Um, 85% of people in the District of Columbia, which is the jury pool, hates Donald Trump. They've convicted everybody who has been charged with Donald Trump type or related crimes. Whereas if you just go across the border, across the bridge to Virginia, you have a much better chance of a fair trial. And so everybody does forum shopping, judge shopping. That's part of the game. But tragically, criminal justice is not a game and it shouldn't be played like a game. There should be a fair system. So, Professor, we would love to hear more about your 50th book. It's an important book. It's called Price of Principle. And we also want to know whether you're going to be allowed to speak about the book at the Chilmark Library. There seems to have been some recent press over the past couple of days that your discussions with the library hopefully are moving a little bit more in your favor. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that too. Well, the library banned me from speaking. I was the most popular speaker. Um, I spoke every year at their invitation. And then they stopped inviting me, I asked them if I could speak. And they said, no, you're too popular. The crowd is too big, so you can't speak. If anybody believes that, I have a bridge to sell them in Brooklyn. Then at the same time, they stopped having my books. So they didn't have this book. They didn't have the nine books that I wrote between the time that I represented President Trump and the time that I threatened litigation. Now that I threatened litigation, they invited me to contribute my books to the library. They're not going to buy them. That's okay. And so I sent the box of my books to the library. 
Let's see if they actually lend them out to people, but they still won't allow me to speak. They'll allow me to apply to speak in the spring for next year, but they won't commit to allowing me to speak. They're just buying time. They're trying to kick the can down the road. In, in the meantime, you know, my wife is being attacked. My children are being attacked. Larry David comes up to me on the store of the Chilmark store, on the porch of the Chilmark store and says, you're discussing, you're discussing, you and all your people are discussing. I saw you pat, pat Mike Pompeo on the back. I did. He was my former student. And I was congratulating him on the camp, on the, on the Abraham Accords and on the Camp David agreements and on peace in the Middle East. I'm not one of these guys who says Trump is all bad, Biden's all good. I voted for Biden because I think he's better than Trump. What Trump did in the Middle East was very good. What Biden did in Afghanistan was very bad. But I still prefer Biden over Trump. That's the way I vote. That's the way I look at life. Those are the principles that I stand for in my book, The Price of Principles. Free speech for all, due process for all, equality for all. Not free speech for me, but not for thee, which is what I think is going on in the hard left today. Professor, uh, we got to turn back to Trump briefly um, sure. because not only is he facing this inquiry into whether he took records that didn't belong to him or that should have been classified or whatever, but there's a variety of other investigations, ever, everything from the January 6th congressional hearings to Georgia to New York. Bottom line, do you think President Trump will be indicted in the next year criminally? No, I don't. I think that the wise minds will prevail uh, and we'll understand that unless you have a smoking gun, unless you have Nixon type crimes, what Nixon did, obviously, were clear crimes. Unless you have Nixon type crimes, I don't think there'll be an indictment. They're not going to indict him for mishandling classified material when that's a common phenomenon. I think that it, the, if there is an indictment, it would have to be for something so serious that most Republicans will agree. Remember, Nixon was removed from office because Republicans came to him and said, we need you to resign. If it's that kind of criminal behavior, then he'll be indicted and he should be. Uh, if on the other hand, it's the kind of criminal behavior that has generally not resulted in criminal prosecution, like the Clinton case and the Sandy Berger case, which did result in an administrative fine and, a, and probation of some kind. Um, I don't think we're going to see indictments. Uh, the greatest risk is probably for conduct before he became president in terms of taxes and over underestimating value of houses. The New York investigation is a problem with that because the person who was conducting the investigation, Letitia James, who's a very nice woman, I know her, uh, she ran for office on the promise to get Trump. The prosecutor should not be running for office on the promise to get somebody. And then, then there's the Georgia investigation, and apparently um, Rudy Giuliani may be a target. Who knows who else may be a target? I don't think there's a crime there. There were attempts to play very tough politics. The phone call is an ambiguous phone call. Find me X thousand of votes. It could mean manufacture them, but it could also mean, and more likely mean, look hard to see whether or not there were miscounted votes. So I just don't think there's going to be an indictment. I think if there is, it will tear the country apart. And it better be a strong case that will result in a conviction. I'm not thinking about a D.C. conviction. I'm thinking about a conviction in a fair court where we can have 
objective people, all of whom did not vote against the candidate. And I haven't seen the evidence of that. Maybe it's there. It's possible. But also we have to unseal this affidavit. I'll give you one example. The affidavit must have something justifying the search of the safe because you cannot search a safe just by saying there's a safe in his office. You have to be able to say under the Fourth Amendment what's in the safe. We know nothing's in the safe. We know it was a Geraldo Rivera Al Capone moment where they opened the safe. There was nothing there. So I want to see the affidavit. Does it say, is there somebody who said, I saw classified material in the safe? If there was, then it justifies the search of the safe. But if not, the safe should not have been searched, nor should the closet of Mrs. Trump. And, uh, you know, the search was so broad, nine hours. That's not what happened to Hillary Clinton. In Hillary Clinton's case, my recollection is that Anthony Weiner's um, uh, computer was searched for emails from Hillary Clinton or to Hillary Clinton from uh, Anthony Weiner's wife. Uh, very, very different. Professor, you've been very generous with your time. I want to just maximize the time we have and ask you a couple of other questions that are on my mind. I'm, sure. Perhaps Tina has one too. You mentioned 50 books, incredibly prolific. One of my favorite books that you wrote was entitled Letters to a Young Lawyer. If you, yeah. And that's probably 20 years old, if I recall. Yeah. If you had to update that and tell a young lawyer who's watching our podcast today, one lesson, one takeaway to a young lawyer, yeah. what, would that be? What, would, what would the updated version of that be? Well, first of all, don't have heroes. That's the first thing. I say that in the book. They all have clay feet. But the other important thing is understand that if you have courage, you will have to pay a heavy price for that. That integrity does carry a heavy price, not only for you, but for your family. And you have to make a judgment as to whether you're willing to endure that. Not everybody is willing to endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that always accompany a criminal defense lawyer, a civil liberties lawyer who does her job or his job. Professor, last question I have is uh, you're, you're famously a Brooklyn Dodgers fan from the time that you were 10, I think, when you saw Jackie Robinson play for the original Brooklyn Dodgers. You even taught the law of baseball, right? Uh, fast forward to today, the Brooklyn Dodgers, now the LA Dodgers, have an incredible successful last few years. Are you still as passionate about the LA Dodgers as you were a Brooklyn Dodger? I suspect yeah, I, not. And how I, do you feel generally about the way the Dodgers are doing these days? Well, I passionately hate them. Um, because I love the Brooklyn. That's any proper Brooklyn, right? How dare they leave Brooklyn? I became a Boston Red Sox uh, fan, although, you know, I grew up on the same block as Sandy Koufax. And so, of course, I followed Sandy to Los Angeles, um, met him once. He then was presented to me as a birthday present for my, I forget, 40th, 50th birthday. I had, I had dinner with Sandy Koufax. Wow. Uh, look, I love baseball. Uh, the Sox, Red Sox are doing terribly. The Dodgers are doing great. The Yankees are doing pretty well, uh, up and down, but very well. Judge is doing remarkably. Um, I love baseball, and I've been to you know every opening game. I even have a Boston Red Sox championship ring. I have a Brooklyn Dodger championship ring. Uh, I was to every opening game during the years I was in Cambridge um, and uh, all the World Series and playoff games. So uh, for me... Uh, Baseball is a, an important part of my life, and the Brooklyn Dodgers were an important part of my growing up. Well, the Dodgers still a pretty lethal force, even without Walker Bueller. We'll see how that goes the rest of the yeah. season. 
Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much for the time as always and the fantastic insight as well. Oh, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me. Show us the book cover one more time, Professor. Okay, here it is. And it's on Amazon and it's inexpensive and it's a fast read. And if you want to support me against my fight against uh, cancellation, read the book. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Professor. It's an honor and privilege to have you as always. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. We just discussed the Trump investigation briefly with Alan Dershowitz. Now we welcome in former FBI agent David Shapiro and distinguished lecturer at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Joe, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Tina and Rich, for having me. David, of the four faces on the screen, you're the only one that's been inside an FBA, FBI search. Um, what have we heard from media that might not be entirely accurate as it relates to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago? The most important thing that we want to be aware of is whether or not evidence was planted. That seems to be the burning issue. Is that even a possibility in your mind? Of course, it's a possibility. Uh, we can't be naive about that. Uh, however, it's unlikely, especially in a high-profile matter like this. Well, let's expand on that a little bit. Um, Trump has, former President Trump has alleged that the FBI planted evidence. You're saying it's a possibility. Um, is that something that you ever, I mean, obviously not that you did, but that's something that you're aware of during your time in the FBI and secondarily, do you think that the motivation of the federal government under the Biden administration would be to frame former President Trump? I mean, what would be the motivation of a FBI agent or agents to plan evidence? Career. Uh, an agent may be tempted to uh, empower his or her career, but I highly doubt that it happened. Trump, Mr. Trump has the resources to fight back effectively, and this seems a convenient cover for the likelihood that classified materials were found. So let's allege they were planted. So David, let's talk about what happened on Monday, which is um, when a Pennsylvania man who threatened to water the trees of liberty with the blood of FBI agents on social media was arrested. This comes in the wake of the attempted breach of Cincinnati FBI offices last week by Ricky Schiffer, who had publicly posted about his anger following the Mar-a-Lago search. How do these events affect the mindset of rank and file agents? Scary. 
the, the idea that one would be at risk as an FBI agent from the general populace for uh, for actions executed in pursuant to one's law enforcement authority, properly supported by a judge. Uh, this is scary stuff, no doubt. Um, it, it, it's not unheard of. And the FBI was aware of uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Schiffer as a problem, a potential problem, uh, well in advance. How do you think President Trump's handling of this situation and his very public questions about, as you mentioned, whether the FBI is planting evidence um, that he continues to be the subject of a, wet, uh, of, a, of a witch hunt, how do those statements play into the minds of people who are disgruntled, many of whom are still disgruntled over what happens in January uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. Well, Trump's style is incendiary. I, I think that's what helped him get elected. That's what helped to mobilize his base. So that is, is hazardous. Uh, people get excited. People get righteous indignation. Uh, people don't know the facts or the evidence. And um, a lot of bad stuff can happen. But uh, Trump thrives on that sort of uh, I, I said, you said, but this is true. So let's talk about um, another accusation by Donald Trump. I, I guess he accused the FBI of stealing his passport, which has since been returned. Explain how his passport may have ended up in the materials seized by the FBI. Well, boxes were seized and the search warrant authorized seizure of, of boxes and other materials that were adjacent to boxes that might have been marked clearly as classified or top secret and so forth. So it's conceivable this kind of stuff happens, uh, that, that evidence is taken, which should not have been taken. And they were promptly returned to Mr. Trump, but it's, it, it happens. Uh, David, you mentioned career advancement as a possible motive for, for planting evidence. Uh, you know, when, when you're an FBI agent and you're executing a warrant in this fashion, obviously, arguably the highest profile uh, execution of a warrant in history. If you're a rank and file FBI agent in Mar-a-Lago, are you possibly looking to, well, maybe there's something in the safe that I could discover that'll make my career. Maybe maybe these passports reveal some information. Maybe there's a trip to Russia. Who knows? Do you think that might play into individual FBI uh, agents' minds as they're doing this search? Not to be seeming to back away. While it is a possibility that evidence were planted, the risk of careerism is way more dangerous at higher levels. The career or street agent uh, has very little to gain and a lot to lose by putting him or herself out on a limb like this. So I can't deny it could happen, but the probability of that is way higher up the chain. So, David, a federal judge in Florida is about to decide whether to unseal the affidavit supporting the search warrant as Trump has called for, or to keep it sealed as the DOJ has requested. What are your thoughts on this? And can you see any logic in the opposite approach? What do you think the judge will do here? Well, th this is an excellent incendiary defense. Again, uh, the, the judge normally would not release this type of document. Uh, this type of document would essentially be superseded through a grand jury presentation with the appropriate evidence presented. Or if no charges are brought, it's generally not released to the would-be uh, defendant or accused. So I, I think Trump is asking for, Mr. Trump, I'm sorry, is asking for things that are would be extraordinary. 
Again, that's former FBI agent David Shapiro and lecturer at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. David, thank you so much for the insight. And thank you, Joe, Rich, Tina. It's been a pleasure. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we head to Spain, where violent strong winds led to one person's death and 40 other injured at a concert over there. Here to comment is Steve Edelman, Vice President of Event Safety Alliance and host of the Event Safety Podcast. You can find out more information at eventsafetyalliance.org. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So Steve, as Joe mentioned, early Saturday morning, high winds exceeding 50 miles an hour caused the main stage at Medusa Festival in Valencia, Spain to collapse, killing one and injuring dozens. Um, Extreme weather conditions have been blamed for the incident. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about what happened, but just tell us whether there's anything else that we don't know and haven't talked about yet about this event, number one. And number two, what's interesting is that we've seen this movie before where there are extreme weather events that are happening. They seem to be happening with greater frequency. Um, so how foreseeable or unforeseeable are these incidents and tragedies um, when we're seeing these types of events happen with greater frequency? Well, I think you answered your own question. Um, you know, how foreseeable is weather? Um, really foreseeable, um, more so than ever before because of climate change. You know, if you think climate change isn't real, go to some outdoor events and take your chances. Um, that's not advice to festival organizers, however, for them. They should be using severe weather monitoring services, you know, actual meteorologists with degrees and science backgrounds. Um, phone apps are fine if you're an attendee, but if you've got lots and lots of people's lives in your hands, you need real science. And meteorological science is quite robust now. So why haven't they been doing this? I mean, we've been, you know, seeing these events happening with greater frequency. As you said, it's really not that difficult to do things like watch the weather and try to plan accordingly. Why haven't festival promoters and planners been doing that? Some have. Um, One of the things that we do not know about the Medusa Festival in particular is, did they have weather monitoring by professional meteorologists or not? Um, I have scoured the internet. I do not know the answer. So that's a question Um, We shouldn't assume one way or the other. Surely we'll come out soon enough. Um, But that's one of the things that people can do now that they couldn't do, I don't know, 20 years ago, is they can hire a meteorologist to watch the weather at the various different meteorological levels that matter so that, you know, if there is a 50 plus mile per hour wind gust that is beyond the, you know, wind capacity of your temporary structure, that people don't die. You just have property damage and then you deal with insurance people. Frankly, that's okay. Um, Bad outcomes for human beings, that's not okay. And that's something that we should be able to avoid now. Um, So Steve, you know, listen, uh, these days in the music industry, touring is the most lucrative part of it right you can't make money selling records anymore you can't make record you can't make money releasing music you can make lots of money by touring the unfortunate reality is the answer to a lot of these questions comes down to money right and someone somewhere is making a decision on the profitability of doing some of these things 
that might prevent these tragedies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, this is standard lawyer conversation with clients 101, which is, you know, we talk about spending money on prevention as opposed to taking the risk and having to pay a lot more on the back end when your plans don't go according to plan. You know, plans are wonderful things. They're very important. But we know that when you put thousands of people with their own agendas and decision-making capacity into a relatively confined space, plans will go sideways. They will. That's a certainty. Then add in, you know, Mother Nature, very pissed off and changeable right now. So there's a lot that can go wrong. You know, what I tell my own clients who are planning outdoor events is invest in having having the weather monitored by somebody who knows what the pretty colors and squiggly lines mean. Um, you know, I and everybody else has an app on my phone. I happen to be colorblind, so I don't even pretend to know what I'm looking at. But lots of people do pretend to know what they're looking at. Those are the people I worry about. So, Steve, you're a leading authority on event safety, and you provided guidance regarding event safety in areas such as crowd management, emergency planning, risk management, and biomechanics. And I think that you're probably a meteorologist in some shape or form as well. <laughs> um, and, and oh, no. <laughs> I, I have friends who are meteorologists. They know the science. I defer to them. You know, one of the things that smart people do is surround themselves with other smart people. That's definitely what I do. <laughs> but go ahead and ask your question. Well, so in 2011, um, following the Indiana State Fair outdoor stage roof collapse, you joined other event industry professionals to form the Event Safety Alliance. Can you just share with us how ESA helps event organizers and venue owners besides, you know, watching the weather and advising them in, in that way? What other steps you advise folks to take? But that's a great question. Thank you for teeing it up so nicely. Um, so the Event Safety Alliance, for which I am vice president, um, our entire focus is on life safety first. Um, we push back on the concept that we still see all the time, which is the show must go on. No, it doesn't. Um, it's entertainment that is our business. We're we're in the business of fun. We you know, we seriously detract from the fun when people get hurt or killed. So, you know, let's put in perspective what we're doing here. With the Event Safety Alliance, one of the things that we focus on is creating industry guidance. So I'm looking on my other computer at industry guidance relevant to this conversation. It is ANSI, A-N-S-I-E-S, Event Safety, 1.7-2021, Event safety requirements, weather preparedness. Yes, there is an American national standard for how to prepare for severe weather at outdoor live entertainment events. I'll say it again. ANSI ES 1.7-2021, weather preparedness. So the Event Safety Alliance is in the business of creating guidance and changing culture so that people take safety more seriously. Um, there are other standards in addition to this one, but we're talking about, you know, dealing with weather, consulting with science, um, you know, not winging it. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm an arts and humanities guy. I genuinely do not understand meteorological science, but I know how to use it. 
So I rely on my smart meteorologist friends to tell me what weather is coming. They rely in turn on me to help advise crowd managers when to move people away from the stage, away from temporary structures towards shelter that is more robust, that is strong enough to withstand whatever weather is coming. That's what I do. But the science part, now I leave that to my smart meteorologist friends, and that's what the Event Safety Alliance advises. People should stay in their lane because we're all good at something, but very few of us are good at everything. Steve, last question here on Legal Faceoff. I'm uh, engrossed in uh, Woodstock 99 on Netflix, watching with my daughter. Uh, I love documentaries in general, but especially ones about these dumpster fires of festivals like fire, like Woodstock 99. Um, how I mean, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but how accurate do you think these depictions of of what of what goes on at these festivals are? I mean, Woodstock '99 is a classic example of how not to run a major event, right? Everything from improper uh, sanitation to lack of water to lack of security to lack of physical infrastructure. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't overstate that. So I haven't seen the documentary yet. It's in my queue, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. But I review event plans pretty regularly. And what I have the luxury of doing because of my practice is I get to review the, the event plan and then talk to the people who were there to see how the plan worked, mm. um, which is a very unusual and incredibly interesting perspective. I will tell you with a high degree of confidence that it's hard to write an event plan that will accommodate lots of crazy things. Having said that, I know that Woodstock 99 was a hygiene catastrophe, and they grossly underprepared things like portos and, and you know potable water. That stuff shouldn't ever get missed. Other things, I mean, planning a major event, there are so many moving parts. I mean, I challenge anyone who doesn't do this stuff for a living to get all the details right. Um, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines, and then when something goes sideways at a major event and draws headlines, easy for that person sitting on the sidelines, warm and dry, to say after the fact, oh, that was an obvious thing to have missed. Oh, my goodness, how could people be so stupid? Try it before you scold the people who do this stuff every day. It's not that easy. It's not that simple. That's why some people like us make a decent living paying attention to these safety issues because they are so complex and so challenging. Steve, before we let you go, why don't you tell us about the Severe Weather Summit that the Event Safety Alliance is hosting? Sure. The Event Safety Alliance uh, puts on a Severe Weather Summit where we bring um, internationally renowned meteorologists uh, into one place with event professionals so they can talk to each other. Uh, the next one will be the first week of January at the University of Texas at Austin. Again, you can find more information at eventsafetyalliance.org. Vice President of Event Safety Alliance, Steve Edelman. Steve, thank you so much for the insight. You're welcome. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Let's move to some sports topics. Live Golf has filed a suit against the PGA Tour, and the NFL has appealed Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension. You may have heard of him on ESPN, CBS, or Fox. Dan Lust, friend of the podcast and sports attorney at Garagos and Garagos in New York City, and co-host of the podcast 
Conduct Detrimental, the Sports Law Intersection. Dan, thanks for being here again. My pleasure to join you. And uh, let's say both of the topics that you've discussed have uh, kept me up uh, and kept me very busy the last week or so. So certainly happy to come on and break. Golf one, Dan, is a little complex. So we're going to try to keep it simple. The most pressing news is that last week, District Court Judge Beth Labson Freeman, she denied a motion for a temporary restraining order that would have allowed three golf players from the Live Tour to compete in the PGA tournament. She said that the players did not show that they would suffer the requisite irreparable harm uh, if they weren't allowed to play. What did she mean by that? So it's probably twofold. There's a failure to show irreparable harm. There's also a failure to show a likelihood of success on the underlying merits. So I guess to kind of break it down, there was a large antitrust lawsuit filed by, it was initially by 11 live golfers, one drop down, so we're down to 10. So in seeking the relief under the antitrust case, one of the causes of relief they also sought was an emergency temporary restraining order. So some people have phrased this as two separate cases. It's really just like the first battle and what is the war on the antitrust case. So on the first level, Rich, is, as you know, right, you can ask for emergency kind of like interim relief. So the antitrust case is going to take years to litigate, literally, probably I don't know, two, three years if you really fight it out. This was an emergency battle to try to get those golfers to play in the FedEx uh, playoff event, which started last week. So the judge said, listen, we, I'm going to look at this case and almost fast forward it. Do you have a likelihood of success on the merits, on your underlying case? Okay, if you do, we can move on. Do you have any, you know, are you able to show irreparable harm that if you don't get this interim relief, you can never be made whole again? So, Rich, on that very, uh, you know, I guess layered standard, the judge said, I'm not even sure you're able to show harm let alone harm that can't be repaired. So, you know, with that, I'm sure we can unpack it. But the judge basically said, these little golfers, you guys have, uh, and I've looked at, you know, the judge has looked at the contracts. I, I think you guys might be making more money by going to live. So it's very hard for me to say how you've been harmed in any way, let alone one that the courts are unable to repair. So a pretty big shot across the bow from, from the bench. Right. And, and the bigger question of whether the PGA is a monopoly, I mean, Judge Primo was, you know, pointed and saying she's not dealing with that. On the other hand, she did raise questions that seem to uh, uh, forecast some skepticism of that claim. What are your thoughts on how she's uh, dealt with that issue? And ultimately, the bigger picture, is the PGA a monopoly? So, yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, Judge Freeman, I guess, is like a part-time stand-up comedian because uh, during her comments, she said, maybe we'll sometime we'll be in this courtroom looking at PGA suing live for an antitrust violation. And what was interesting, I mean, we're not going to know. This was a, a Zoom, uh, you know, court appearance that a lot of people got to watch. Um, but there were certain portions of the submissions that were unknown. We don't know what the live contracts are. The judge is privy to that and said that these live contracts appear to be more restrictive than what the PGA golfers have seen. So at the end of the day, right, what is an antitrust claim? It's a claim that one entity controls so much power in the market that they are not allowing other entities to compete. And... I don't know, maybe six months ago when there were whispers that the PGA Tour was going to ban golfers for life that went over to live. Yeah, I could see that. That's you wielding too much power and too much control. What we've seen in practice in the last 60 days, we've seen a lot of top PGA golfers defect over to live for large, substantial sums of money. Some 100 million, right? Uh, 200 million, those numbers are being floated out there. So live by all intents and purposes seems to be able to compete so much so, right? They're making a dent, uh, probably unlike any upstart league that I know in sports history, 
pulling top guys. I think five of the top 10 earners of the PGA Tour have, have gone over. Um, so, you know, guys like Brooks Koepka, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, Bill Mickelson, Dustin Johnson. So the judge is essentially saying, it's tough for you guys to say that you can't compete when you're clearly competing. Um, and on the same day that Judge Freeman ruled, a lot of rumors swirling that Cam Smith, the most recent winner of the British Open, has reportedly accepted a $100 million offer to move over. So that's why the judge is joking, hey, maybe the shoe's on the wrong foot here. The entity that's seemingly pulling all these golfers over, the one that seemingly has more money, maybe that's the one down the line that's going to get more trouble. Let's change topics. Another uh, story that continues to be in the news is, as Joe mentioned at, this, at the jump, uh, Deshaun Watson, who is now a member of the Cleveland Browns, uh, didn't look great in his opener, by the way. Uh, looked like a guy who spent a lot of time you know, in court and apologizing. He has settled um, all of the lawsuits brought by masseuses against him, yet all but one. Is that right? Um, uh, despite that, he was handed a six-game suspension by a former federal judge who was hired by the NFL to adjudicate this issue. Now, the NFL is appealing that to what a former New Jersey attorney general who is reviewing whether that is the proper penalty. It's a little bit odd that, you know, uh, unlike in a lot of sports where the commissioner decides discipline or a person in the commissioner's office, in this case, Roger Goodell hired someone to decide that. And then when that person decided the penalty, he said, well, we don't, we don't buy it. We don't want to buy that. We want to appeal it. Um, he said, he, Goodell used uh, the words egregious and predatory in describing Watson's behavior. Explain to our listeners and viewers why the NFL is different and sort of the, the process involved in, in, in litigating this issue. So there's a lot of layers to this, and it depends. You know, uh, we're, we're on the verge of maybe getting a decision or a settlement from Judge Harvey. This could really happen any, any minute. Um, so the NFL, to, to your point, Rich, is appealing to the case to this guy, Peter Harvey, who the former attorney general is now a, a partner in the law firm in New York City. This is someone that sits on the NFL's diversity committee. It's someone that's handled cases for the NFL before. It's someone that was quite literally handpicked by Roger Goodell. So people outside of the legal space, they're wondering how this is legal, how this makes sense. This looks a lot like the kangaroo court, where one of the litigants gets to pick the judge. Uh, that's almost exactly what's happening. Um, the short answer to your question is that this was a system that was collectively bargained for and agreed to by the NFL owners and the NFL Players Association. So they got their heads together, and I followed this very closely in early, uh, you know, February of 2020. This is the disciplinary system that they agreed to. Is it fair? No. Is it an improvement on the last system? It is. Because under the old system, there was no version of Judge Sue Robinson who gave the six-game punishment. Judge Robinson found that there was a violation of the personal conduct policy. Who was an independent person? She's a you know a federal judge that the Players Association and the league picked together. This Judge Robinson found that Sean Watson committed four you know incident counts of sexual assault. Um, so she found that something happened under the NFL's policy or this, this collective bargain for policy. If the independent judge finds that the policy was violated, that Watson actually did do something wrong, then the NFL can pick this handpicked judge and, and go from there. Under the old model, the NFL got to decide if something was wrong, if the policy was violent, and then got to assign it to this independent, uh, you know, I'm putting in quotes now, an independent person. 
but the NFL got to pick it. So, um, you know, it's, I don't think it's a fair system by any means, but the only you know, point I think that, that we should mention, um, there were two separate grand juries in Texas that found that Watson did not, did not commit any type of sexual assault, misdemeanor, felony. They cleared Deshaun Watson. So two separate grand juries, multiple people, and you have a judge, a former federal judge, Sue Robinson of Delaware, that said that Deshaun Watson committed some sexual assault. So under the old system, there would be no independent person, at least under this system. Yeah, it might not be great that it's going to an NFL handpicked person, but at least here a judge, an independent judge, Sue Robinson, has found that something occurred. So that's where we're at now. Um, you know, there are a lot of reports swirling that, that the NFL and Watson are trying to settle this case. Um, but let's see. Uh, let's see if Harvey's decision comes in quicker, which I think many people expect Harvey to issue a full one-year suspension. So we'll see if the settlement ends up being less than that. Last question, prediction. What, what do you, I mean, do you think we stay at six? Do you think he gets a year or do you think they settle for some more in between? Okay. This is where, uh, this is why they pay me the big bucks in podcasts. Well, no, I'm just kidding. No one pays me any Prognostication part of the show. Um, yeah. So the, without getting into too much into the weeds, Deshaun Watson, and I think probably last time I was on with you or last time you and I spoke, Deshaun Watson has agreed to a salary for this year of $1 million. And very, I'm going to say controversially, uh, was able to get a $230 million guaranteed contract from the Cleveland Browns. Year two through four of that salary, I think it's actually five-year deal, pays like $45 million a year. So if Watson were to get suspended for this entire year, that contract would roll over and that $1 million would start the next year. Okay? Just go with me for a second. Uh, if he is suspended for any amount of games that is not a full season, you would start, uh, you know, the game checks that would be affected were on based on that $1 million salary. So it's a long, long way of saying uh, that if Watson were to accept a suspension of less than a year, be it 10 games, 12 games, 14 games, even 16 games, all the way up to that number, you are suspending him based on his $1 million salary. Now, if you uh, want to fight this thing, Rich, and someone wants to take this to federal court and fight this at its next level, if Watson, in theory, gets suspended for a year and wants to go to federal court and fight this like Brady did, there's a chance that that suspension starts impacting that next salary, that 2023 salary. So I, I don't see a world where Watson wants to fight this in federal court for a year like Tom Brady did. I think most likely scenario here is a settlement in the range of like 10 to 14 games with some type of, uh, which something the NFL wants, some types of uh, sexual you know, uh, counseling, something like that. I know the NFL is looking for it and some type of monetary fine. So Watson will agree to less games if he takes on, you know, pays something out of pocket and some type of counseling, which Roger Goodell once upon a time ordered for Ben Roethlisberger. So I, I think on a game level, less than a year is the most likely outcome. And I think there will be some extra conditions attached to it. Again, that's sports attorney Dan Lust of Garagos and Garagos and co-host of the podcast Conduct Detrimental. Tune into that when you can. Dan, thanks so much for the insight. My pleasure, guys. Let's get to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast and our two guests. We start with Howard Shatsky, agent at Coaches Management Group. Howard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And along with Brian Perry, Chief Legal Officer and Head of Northern Illinois Legal Services. Brian, thanks for being here as well. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, All right. Rich. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. 
No, you're fine. Let's uh, let's just dive into one of the topics we've been covering a little bit earlier in this podcast of the Trump investigation. I mean, Trump, 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 all day Trump. Like we've been covering Trump legal stories for at least what six years, going on seven years, and it's really we gotta owe a lot of debt to the former president because as a uh, provider of content, he is second to none. So. It's not ending, friends. Obviously, we're talking about, we just talked a lot about the uh, um, the search of his home of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, there's, what, five or six other probes into everything from his campaign meddling to uh, January 6th, uh, Georgia, New York. Um, you know, the latest news is that uh, all of the people around him, including Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, they have been ordered to testify in various uh, inquiries. So it doesn't look great for the former president. On the other hand, Tina, this guy is like almost Teflon. I mean, you could argue politically that this is the greatest thing that's happened to him, right? Uh, Ron DeSantis out of Florida was, you know, kind of seen as the future of the party. Uh, In the last 10 days, two weeks, Trump has raised so much money and garnered so much support that you could argue that all of these legal troubles are the best news ever for uh, for Donald J. Trump. Yeah, no, I mean, we could spend the whole afternoon talking about all of the different ways in which he's under he's currently under fire. And we did do quite a bit of talking about it during the course of this podcast. I agree with you that I think it's sort of a double-edged thing. And ultimately, I think it's one of those things where Ultimately, I don't think people want him to be elected if you're a Democrat. And so a lot of this may be an effort to try to make him unelectable. Um, But I think it's a slippery slope for Democrats, as we've discussed previously. I think that, you know, it's a longer term um, proposition here. And there needs to be some delicacy and care to all of this, too, because of the politics behind all of this and just making sure that the Democrats don't push this so far to the other end that it ends up backfiring. So those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. And, and those are all good ones, Brian, we just had on a former FBI agent and I was a little bit surprised at the beginning where he said, you know, uh, it is possible that FBI agents planted evidence. I think he walked that back a little, but you know, as a lawyer, you're a lawyer, we're all lawyers, most of us here, and it bothers me continuously when you continually hear the president and people around him talk about the law and lawyers like this as if it's something to transact, right? As if FBI agents would stake their oath and, you know, the the, the highest lawyer in the country, the attorney general, would simply be doing these things out of uh, spite, out of politics, out of a desire to frame him. It kind of debases the entire profession of law. What, what what are your thoughts on that part of it? You know, Rich, I think you're spot on. I mean, it's it sounds sort of naive, but but we have to operate with some basic principles that we operate under fairness, equity, and 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 lawyers still have a high oath and do not just do things. So yeah, Mayor Garland, former Supreme Court nominee. I don't think he would risk his reputation on a political case if there was nothing there. The extent of it, we, we just don't know. But uh, I don't think he would, would throw years of his reputation behind him just to get a political victory, which, as Cena pointed out, I think is kind of uncertain is the effect of all this attention on Trump is having. He's arguably more popular now outside of being president than he was when he was president. Howard, what are your thoughts on whether we see 
the former president wearing a jumpsuit anytime soon. Oh, that would be fantastic. Unfortunately, I don't think that'll happen. Um, you know, I recall hearing him say that only people who are guilty plead the fifth. <laughs> Which kind of Eric Trump plead the fifth? I, was How many, I wasn't Trump. That was the point of Trump. Donald Trump will plead the fifth. Rudy Giuliani will plead the fifth. The only question I have is, what was in the box of socks? <laughs> right. Well, Tina, we've heard the separation of church and state. How about the separation of church and musicals? The award-winning <laughs> musical Hamilton has hit Catholic Church, and now lawyers are getting involved. Yeah, Joe. So earlier this month, a Texas church put on two performances of a musical that it based on the hit show Hamilton, which everyone knows at this point tells the story of Alexander Hamilton. The church's version was a bit different. It changed the original lyrics to include biblical references and a sermon that tells parishioners that God can help those folks who are struggling with alcohol, drugs, and homosexuality. Um, the uh, official Hamilton production was none too pleased with any of this and sent a demand letter and a claim that the use of the lyrics by the church is unauthorized and constitutes infringement of the copyright in the musical. So the letter went out after the per first performance was live streamed. Um, the church has a YouTube channel and that's where it was streamed. Um, and the Hamilton production folks permitted the second performance as long as they had gotten assurances that it was not going to be live streamed or recorded or shared on social media. So it doesn't look like any lawsuit has been filed yet. Um, Hamilton creator Lin-Manuel Miranda did tweet that he was grateful to everyone for their support about this illegal and unauthorized production and did sort of foreshadow that there are going to be lawyers now doing their work. What's interesting here from a legal perspective and adds a wrinkle here is that churches are able to perform certain works under the religious services exemption of the Copyright Act. Um, those exempted works, though, tend to be performances of musical works of a religious nature. Um, and a lot of legal experts are commenting on the fact that this really shouldn't apply here because Hamilton is not by its very nature a religious work. And this exemption to the copyright law is a pretty narrow one in practice. Um, what's gonna be interesting to see is if the church decides to just you know, shut down now um, for fear of any further action, legal action from Lin-Manuel Miranda, or if it's going to try to push to continue to produce this. Um, you know, what's really interesting is that this is one of the most complicated analyses, and it's one of the most complicated analyses that we see in IP law. Rich, I predict the church is going to shut this one down. So, Tina, we just talked to Alan Dershowitz, the Dersh, and you know, one of his books is called Chutzpah. Uh, <laughs> Shatsky knows what that term means. I'm not sure, you know, that means balls. I mean, it, it and we're talking about Hamilton, maybe we're talking about cannonballs, but I mean. To rip off the most famous play in history, most famous musical, is one thing. To rip it off and then replace the words with anti-gay you know, gay and, and religious uh, words is, is just, it takes balls. Uh, that's all I'll say. I mean, this story, the next story, uh, it just, you know, I'm all for fair use, right? Um, 
but there's fair use and then there's this. So, um, yeah, it's pretty complicated, Rich. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think it's that double whammy here, right? So it's not only the taking, but what they did in the context of the taking. And it's so against what that whole production, the original production is about. Um, I think it's that double whammy. But we have seen interesting fair use cases over the years where you'd think that the defendant wouldn't get away with it, but then they have. So it's a complicated area, but I agree with you. It's that double whammy that I think makes this particularly um, despicable. Yeah. Howard, uh, have you seen the church production of uh, <laughs> of Hamilton, which is now apparently an anti-alcohol, anti-drug, anti-homosexual, uh, homosexuality uh, play? No, but my wife and I did recently see the original version at the Kennedy Center, which I... I did record the production. I'm now, as we speak, deleting it from my YouTube channel for <laughs> your opinion about the fair use because I had recorded the entire production and placed it right on YouTube. So I better get that off right now. I agree with you. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't turn you in. <laughs> Brian, what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, for me, I take this out as just the fair use. I mean, for the church, I think they got exactly what they want. I mean, now they have the platform that they didn't have before that everyone's checking into this, see what did they do, what did they say? Uh, you know, Hamilton, like you said, is obviously like the biggest production ever. So if you're going to pick something, why not go for that one? So now everybody's looking at that church and figuring out like, what is the big deal? So I think it's a win for them, but legally they don't have a, a, a leg to stand on. And Miranda, he has brand control. Because like you said, I mean, equity and Saw the production. I mean, he wants diversity and diverse opinions, and this is against that. So he has to protect that brand because he doesn't stand for that. And uh, they'll work something out, but I don't think legally the church has a leg to stand on. But in terms of their publicity, they definitely got a lot of it for very little money. Let's stick with musicals, but move from Hamilton to Bridgerton, Tina. I can't even imagine seeing the Catholic Church put a spin on Bridgerton, though. Oh, no, that's uh, that's not what's going on here, Joe. So in a bit of a surprising move, at least to some Netflix, which has the very popular show Bridgerton, which was also inspired by a book series, um, sued Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear, who are the duo behind the Grammy winning unofficial Bridgerton musical. Uh, they were sued for intellectual property infringement last month in Washington. So this lawsuit claims that the duo have claimed carte blanche authorization um, to profit from Netflix's valuable IP. Um, although Netflix seemed to not really object to this when it first started, Netflix is now claiming that they have stretched the boundaries of fan fiction well past its breaking point and that the duo have copied liberally and nearly identically from the show in a number of ways. So what's so shocking about this is that this has been going on for quite some time. The unofficial Bridgerton musical started on TikTok in early 2021. So it's been, you know, a good year and a half. And the album that won a 2022 Grammy for the best musical theater album was released almost a year ago. Netflix claims that they never gave them permission. The duo claims that they did receive Netflix's permission and that Netflix has been very supportive. 
What's interesting is that what appears to be different now is that there was a concert given last month that was the unofficial Bridgerton musical album live in concert. And it was a for-profit show at the Kennedy Center. And, you know, legal pundits now are surmising that the reason why this is different now is because it's gotten to a point where the where the duo is interfering with Netflix's own plans for the money-making enterprise. And Netflix's ability to do something has been accelerated because the duo is now making a lot of money off of this. And so there are some similarities, Rich, with the last case in terms of the analysis of fair use, which is much harder to find when you're talking about a commercial use where um, people are making money off of the work that is created based on an original work. Um, and also depends on the amount of the material taken. And with Netflix alleging that there's been a lot of the material directly lifted, um, it may be tough for the duo to combat this copyright infringement claim. Yeah, I mean, there's really two issues at play, Tina, and you mentioned. I mean, they have to prove that their work was transformative enough to qualify under fair play, fair use, I should say. And it's just not that, right? When you do a side by side of, the two, it's like they're they're not interpreting it. They're literally using the same work, same IP that you know Bridget came up with. So that's a tough argument. Number two, they're arguing, I guess, that they were given a license, and that the, and the question will be, if this case goes to trial, whether they acted within the frameworks of that license, or as Netflix alleges, they went beyond that. And to your point, that's not as clear, and it's really a question of. <laughs> Netflix now enforcing those boundaries because it's making money. I mean, they won a Grammy, for Christ's sake. How many TikTokers win a Grammy, right? So it's interesting, you know, on the one hand, as you know more than anyone being an IP expert, that, you know, IP law um, is really specific. On the other hand, a lot of times it just comes down to money, right? I mean, Netflix is having a, a bad run. They're losing subscribers, and it's in their economic interest to now say, Oh, you want to go into these big concert halls, these big venues? Well, pay it. Pay up for that. We didn't agree to that. No way. Well, uh, and also Brian, the whole fan yeah. culture issue, too, is something that we should touch on for just a quick second. Yeah. Because I've advised a lot of clients over the years in this area about technical infringement versus um, trying not to get your fans all upset. And so there was clearly a lot of that here where I think Netflix was allowing these fans to create and to help perpetuate right. and leverage the fan culture. But there comes a point where you hit that tipping point. Well, and again, why is that? The answer, Tina and Brian, is because it makes them money. At the end of the day, follow the money, right? Why would Netflix, why would any owner of IP allow someone else to use their IP to copy it? Because it makes money. It, it supports the brand. It gets more eyes, more TikTokers, more likes on Bridgerton. That's good for Bridgerton. and that's good for Netflix. The moment the owner of the IP decides, well, this is no longer in our financial interest, then it's a different story. So listen, law is law, but at the end of the day, Brian, follow the money is what I'm saying. Dole Johnny Manziel. That's, that's <laughs> it is. Exactly. I mean, Netflix has been losing money hand over fist for the last year. They see an opportunity here to bring this in. And do you want to start a practice of these either licensed or TikTok fads where the fans take over one of your successful programs and do their own thing and you get caught out of that. I think this is an opportunity to get back to the table, 
leverage this and try to make this profitable for everybody. But no question, this is this is a money thing. And, and I don't think there's much of an argument that if this goes to court, Netflix is probably going to prevail. But instead of being the heavy, try to come back to the table, leverage those new fans that are TikTokers and whatever the next trend is and bring them to the table. So I think Netflix is seeing this as a potential win for them to, to use a new model and uh, it's already been created. I'm putting out there right now, Tina, to all our millions and millions of TikTokers and, and uh, Snapchatters that if you want to do a musical based on Legal Face Off, come talk to us. You know, we're not yeah. giving you a blanket license right now. We'll consider it. You know, I mean, Lord knows it would, make a fast, yeah, it would make a fascinating musical talking about, you know, fair use and whether Skittles are actually harmful to your health. Well, we definitely would have to have Springsteen join yeah, as part of that absolutely. musical. Absolutely. And we're just playing all the hits right now. I don't know if our uh, internet connection can keep up with all the response that we'll have from everyone being interested to make a musical of the Legal Faceoff podcast. I just want, I just want, I don't want to give Dershowitz a nice solo. Like at some point mid show, Dersh comes on for a tear jerking, you know, sort of uh, Lay Miz style tear jerker. Alongside well, Gloria Allred. Yeah. Gloria and Dersh, they do a. I think we're on to something. I'm just saying, I think we're on to something. Well, let's include Brian Perry with uh, some of the uh, script because his segue into Johnny Manziel and the NFL into our next topic was just flawless. Uh, Just like Johnny football was absent from his NFL career, Steelers wide receiver Deontay Johnson apparently pulled an audible and absent from his youth football camp, Rich. Wow. Another, that one goes into the, Segway the Joe Brand Hall of Fame lead up for puns, uh, an all time. Hey, Br- Br- Brian pretty much set me up, so I, I definitely got to give him the assist. It's, it's pretty good. Deontay Johnson, who actually had a really good year, yeah. uh, I think he had eight touchdowns or something, um, gets a big contract signed uh, earlier this month, two year deal worth small sum of $36.71 million. Again, coming off a season, a career season, eight, eight touchdowns, 107 catches. Big year. Well, he agrees. He contracts in legal terms to go to a camp and teach some young people how to catch a football. And apparently, allegedly in the lawsuit, he texted the camp organizers only 13 minutes, Tina, ahead of the scheduled start time to tell him that his flight was canceled. He was going to get another flight. But that would have arrived later in the day. And, you know, his agent said he doesn't want to do that. Again, he's sitting on a big contract uh, and they sued him. Right. They want uh, the money back that they agreed to pay him in exchange for his appearance. And now uh, they're in court. So, Tina, you're a big star. Um, You know, you (laughs) often are contracted to uh, come speak. Who's on the right here? Should Deontay Johnson have to come up with? the money to make the camp whole or to the camp just eat the money? Well, you know, putting aside the possibility that he didn't want to appear and just taking at face value that the flight was canceled. At the end of the day, the camp should not eat the money. I mean, that's what contracts are for. And assuming that the contract did provide for the possibility that he was a no-show, you know, then they should not have to eat the money. And, you know, another angle to this too, Rich, is just the fact that they're kids. Okay, these are kids who are so excited to see them. And, I mean, we've all heard stories before about athletes and other celebrities who are supposed to make it to an event 
to make the kids happy and who don't show up either rightly or wrongly. They just don't show up and the disappointment of the kids. And so I don't think the camp should eat it. Howard, this is your this is your wheelhouse. You have represented many NFL players. You currently represent many NFL coaches. Why does Deontay Johnson hate kids so much? Rich, he, he doesn't hate kids. There's a very simple explanation. You know, you know, I live near the Kennedy Center. I just mentioned that my wife and I had recently seen Hamilton. Deontay and I were we were at the Kennedy Center. Ah, we, you see? We, <laughs> an alibi. We were seeing Bridgerton. We recorded it. <laughs> we through that. We got rid of it. No, but in all seriousness, um, I've done these type of appearances many times. Um, without question, the camp is in the right. Um, contractually, I'm going to assume they have the right to get the money back from him rather than embarrass himself and have them take him to court. I would just... Like you said, he signed for about thirty-six million guaranteed. So I would give them their ten grand or whatever it was back and call it a day. Brian, this is not too far from what's on your mind these days as general counsel of a Division One school with a very prominent football program, right? The MAC champion, Northern Illinois yeah. Huskies. Uh, players are not just NFL players, but college players are being paid. I just saw, what did I see? That guy, the you, uh, the the Hurricane alum, he paid a guy, and Joe might know, he paid a guy, what, $800,000 in a deal? You know what I'm talking about? This, uh, I think his name is Juan Ortiz. He's a prominent University of Miami alum, and he's paying students like six-figure uh, salaries. So that's the money. It was seven to to, yeah. a, to a high school player named Jaden right. Rashad, who exactly. was and uh, what what you know I'm sure Brian has already dealt with it at his school. The name and image and likeness laws have changed in many states, and right. that combined with what the NCAA is now allowing is what's now allowing these kids to make money while they're in school. Yeah. Hey, here's the good news. All the kids, Brian, who didn't get to see Deontay Johnson, they're probably getting paid as <laughs> in grammar school anyway. So it's all good. Yeah, it's, it's the Wild Wild West right now. It's like athletes are being paid, conference realignment. A lot of coaches are using this to their advantage to now, even recruiting. So this is just the beginning of just the, the total revamping of college sports as we know it. So um, but I, I will say, as born and raised in Baltimore, you know, leave it to a Steeler player to, to disappoint <laughs> the kids. So that's, that's all I'll say about that. Let's move on to Hollywood Rich. Once a pair of American sweethearts, Olivia Wilde just Ted Lassoed a big custody win against her ex-husband, Jason Sudeikis. Wow, just rolling, Joe. Just rolling. Just, just firing. Amazing. Uh, spirals. Uh, yeah, we remember, Tina, we talked about uh, Olivia Wilde was addressing a large audience at maybe Cinecon, a big, you know, uh, I think it was Cinecon. It was a big mm-hmm. um, event. And she was handed divorce papers in an envelope in the middle of this presentation. And she was presenting a movie she directed, um, you know, big movie starring, by the way, uh, you know, one of my favorites, Harry Styles. Uh, at the time, Sudeikis alleged that he didn't know that that was happening. He didn't direct 
his ex-wife to be served embarrassingly on stage. Well, now in papers revealed recently, she is saying, Olivia Wilde is saying, yes, you did that quite on purpose. Uh, who knows if that influenced the judge in this case who decided to keep the kids with her in California and not New York. She was seen sort of risk raising her hand in victory. Uh, since this, Jason Sudeikis, again, the star of Ted Lasso, has said, no, again, that wasn't my intent. I actually wanted to serve it at her home, but I didn't want my kids to see Harry Styles, something like that, something involving the kids and Harry Styles. I couldn't quite follow that part. Um, I got wowed when I just heard Harry Styles, because as you know, I love Harry. But um, <laughs> just more celebrity uh, weird divorce news, Tina. Well, I just, yeah, I think the story was that she's probably going to have dual residence like California and London, which is where Harry Styles is. And he didn't want to serve her in London at Harry's yeah, house because good. the kids were probably going to be there. But Harry's I mean, Harry house, just, by the way, the name of the new Harry Styles album, ironically enough. What is it? Harry's house. Harry's house. It's called Harry's house. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I have to say as I was studying up on this story that I just have a hard time believing that Jason Sudeikis had no idea that she was going to be served these papers in the middle of a presentation for her new movie. Like I just, it it just boggles my mind that a process server would ever think to serve someone while they're on the stage. Hey, he's Unless doing it, his job. You got to commend the guy. He's oh, doing come on. Like he can't catch him on the way in or the way out. Like he has to catch Howard, him what's the feet. job? What's the number? He has one job. Hand an envelope to someone. He did it. I commend the guy. He did it on purpose too. He totally right. did it on purpose. This notion that he didn't do it on purpose is ludicrous to me. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think you're right about Sudeikis. I don't blame the process server. That's no, I don't like, blame you know, the that, process server. That guy the process does, server got instructions. That guy deserves a tip. Yes. I think Sudeikis is like, worried about his image now, and he's trying to, you know, re- recreate what happened. Forget Sudeikis. At, at, the, at the process server uh, Oscars, or whatever the award <laughs> ceremony is, for pro- this guy should be server of the year, process server of the year. <laughs> the surveys. I tried the very same thing once with the New York Jets. Uh, it didn't work out quite the same. <laughs> well, Did you Howard video that talk- and put that on YouTube also? <laughs> I threatened to. Well, Howard, I'm sure some of your clients have been served in person. And again, to flip it, I wouldn't want to be the process server serving like the Brickishaw Ferguson. I'm not saying the Brickishaw Ferguson has ever been served, but he is an example of a large human being that I would not want to confront with a legal document. Those guys have hard work, hard job. Yeah. I've um, always instructed my guys though never to uh take a swing because that swing will cost them a lot more money than probably what's on that piece of paper. That's right. You got it. Jason Sudeikis got to serve, but he also served it with a blank check and a pen because he's <laughs> gonna pay for this one way or the other. So this is, he just gave her uh, a, a, an issue that she didn't have before. And, and I think she's going to take it to the bank. So stay tuned. You know, let's revisit a topic we covered a little bit earlier with Alan Dershowitz. Maybe not the newest information, but still pretty significant. The FBI confirming that it was Alec Baldwin who pulled the trigger that led to a death on his movie set last year. Yeah, Joe. So we've covered this topic extensively on Legal Faceoff and did touch on this with Alan Dershowitz earlier. Um, so the tragedy happened last October. Um, the shooting left the movie cinematographer Helena Hutchins dead and the director Joel Souza injured. 
Um, shortly after the incident, Alec Baldwin had claimed that he did not pull the trigger. But the FBI forensic report that became public last week included a conclusion from the FBI that the revolver was intact and functional and could not have been fired without a pull of the trigger unless the hammer was decocked on a loaded chamber and the hammer was struck directly was the direct report. So the press has been quick to jump on this development and Baldwin's attorney has also been quick to respond by saying that the FBI report is actually being misconstrued and that the FBI was unable to fire the gun in any prior test and that the gun fired in testing only one time without having to pull the trigger. So his attorney is trying to essentially reframe what the FBI's findings were. Um, in addition, other developments include the fact that Baldwin's attorney mentioned again that the New Mexico authorities several times have ruled that the incident was an accident um, and that Alec Baldwin had no authority or knowledge of the unsafe conditions um, and that he had been told that the gun was cold. Um, the movie's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, has also been a focal point in this whole thing as someone who's got potential liability because she's the one who handed Baldwin the gun. Her attorney claims that it's pretty clear that she's being scapegoated here and that she actually wasn't really given the tools and training she was needed to perform her job properly. So the latest uh, news development on this is that um, Alec Baldwin just appeared on the Chris Cuomo project and said, you know, there's a lot good of gig, but good gig, good gig, by the way, good get. <laughs> Yes. Is there is there is there currently a lower rung of the interview scale than being the Chris the Chris Cuomo show? Well, that's what happens when you're defracked from CNN, right? Yeah. So Baldwin said that while there's a lot of speculation and FBI reports and so forth, that every single person on the set, notwithstanding what's being said in the press and otherwise, everybody on that set knows exactly what happened. And that the real tragedy here is not what's happening to his reputation, but the fact that she died. So there's still more to do here in terms of the investigation. Baldwin's phone records are still being reviewed and the medical investigator reports um, will be combined with the phone records and the rest of the file. And it's going to be forwarded to the district attorney for review and final charging decisions will then be made. But so far, no criminal charges have been have been lodged here. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds, Rich. I think um, Alan Dershowitz may have this one right. Civil liability, yeah. not criminal. Yeah, uh, maybe, Tina. Uh, Joe, get ready for this one. Um, I'll, I'll pause and let you get ready. I haven't seen, I saw the Chris Cole interview that you're talking about, and mm -hmm. I haven't seen an Alec Baldwin performance that unbelievable since the getaway. <laughs> Is this thing on since the getaway? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was debating whether to say the getaway or the marrying man. Um, but I went with the getaway. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, uh, it's impossible to believe that. Uh, well, now he says it was flashing. He was doing this, what do you call it, flashing or something where you're like, you know, kind of cocking the, the hammer. I mean, he will probably not get charged criminally. I agree with Dersh. But, you know, he's going to be uh, he's going to get hit hard civilly. Um, 
And I agree. I, I think that there is definite civil liability. Obviously, there's a big difference between civil and criminal liability. We don't know. It's taking a long time for this police department, for this DA's office in, in Santa Fe to, to, to wrap up their investigation. I mean, admittedly, there's a lot of people involved, but come on, wrap it up. Let's let's go. There's a lot of people involved here. Um, uh, I think he will be I think he will be exonerated or he won't be charged criminally, but I think civilly he'll 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 face some liability. Brian, uh, Howard, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, 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 oh, yeah, I, I think it's civil all the way. Um, I, I think it's enough there criminally, although they are taking a really, really long time looking at this and can't figure out what the investigation problems or hiccups they're having. But yeah, I, I think this is civilly. Um, again, his performance in some of the interviews and just his overall conduct not helping his brand at all. Uh, I think he's going to get hit pretty hard and. Uh, by him and some of the other uh, victims who were there, uh, her husband in particular. I'm I'm kind of surprised myself about some of the things that he said, and you know about maybe the the advice he's getting. But I'm astounded he actually doubled down on the fact and said that he never fired the gun. But I read an article that said the FBI said it's impossible without pulling the trigger that the gun can be fired. So. Like you said, I think there's going to be some some liability there because both of those things can't be true. And I think coming up on the Chris Cuomo show, coming up on the Chris Cuomo show, OJ Simpson. <laughs> well, we've already hinted at it, but if there's a story involving Bruce Springsteen, we're going to cover it. Uh, it did take me a moment though to decipher the past headline that the saxophonist was deceased. Not just late to a concert, but this story, Rich, involves his son. Yes, Joe. <laughs> wow. Uh, this will Clarence make it Clemens. to the blooper reel. <laughs> Clarence Clements was the saxophonist until he died, unfortunately, about quite, 10 quite years ago, some, maybe. some time ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, the big man, as he was known. Well, he had a couple of sons. I mean, he, his... As Tina knows, his nephew, Jake, is the current saxophonist in the E Street Band. But he had a couple of kids, and his estate holds the license to his likeness. Uh, and that includes his name. That includes, you know, everything uh, that goes along with the big man, including this iconic nickname, Tina. Uh, well, the trust did not authorize his sons to use the big name, nickname, in lots of enterprises, including... Uh, for weed, uh, Big Man's Blazed Baked Goods is the weed company, and Big Man's Management Music and Promotions are out there actively using the name. And the um, the uh, the trustee said, "No, not so fast. We have to authorize that until I think it was the youngest kid gets to be twenty five, then they can do what they want." But that's the subject of this lawsuit. It's another example of you know dead celebrities have value there's lots of value and we often see family members coming out trying to capitalize monetarily on their dead relative's name it's unfortunate but it's interesting i actually thought what the judge said was interesting that uh you know uh it doesn't seem to because they were looking for lawyers fees attorney's fees and there was all these racked of attorney's fees the judge said well for what 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 are the attorneys really doing? There's not a, a lot of active litigation, so that was also sort of an interesting corollary to the story. 
Yeah, you know, and from a legal perspective, it's pretty cut and dry, right? At the end of the day, when someone dies, their estate, you know, especially if they take steps to have this all arranged before they're passing, um, it's pretty cut and dry that the estate controls things like right of publicity, the branding, anything that would, from an IP perspective was owned by the deceased. Um, you know, to me, it's an interesting and somewhat sad commentary about the state of affairs in that family. If um, if his son went off and was using his name and likeness without authorization and didn't really understand that you can't do that when you've got an estate that's sort of, you know, managing that. And to what extent did the estate, did he ask and the estate said no? I mean, that could be a really sad situation. So to me, I mean, like what the really sad takeaway here is that it may be a commentary on the state of that fa family since Clarence passed. All right, quickly, we're, we're almost out of time. Howard, favorite, we're going to go around the horn, favorite Bruce Springsteen song of all time. Go. Well, I just have to say, in defense of the little big man, you did say baked goods. Those are edibles, not something <laughs> with smoke. Ah, Let's there you go. That's true. But favorite Bruce Springsteen of all time, without, without a doubt, born to run. Wow, way to go out on a limb on that one. Joe Brands. Favorite Springsteen song that's not Born to Run. I appreciate it. So don't let me down. Don't let your youth and experience cloud this answer. I, I feel like we've done this before, but I also just appreciate you still including me in this conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Entry to this topic. Uh, but I'll go, with, I'll go with Merry Christmas, baby. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, Brian Perry, favorite um, Springsteen song. I'm in the heart of Illinois, so born in the USA. There you go. Very good one. Tina? So this is so hard because you know that I am quite the fan, but if I had to sort of look at a body of work that is my favorite of his, probably because of the time that I got into him, would be Tunnel of Love. And that song, I love that song. So. Isn't that where you met David Sussler, frequent legal face-off guest in a tunnel of love in New Jersey? Uh, not quite. That's, met him, uh, met him Ur at the old Ur firm, but I guess Urban you could legend. analogize it to the tunnel of love. <laughs> uh, there you go. Well, my favorite of the many songs that I love, um, probably still Thunder Road is my you know my OG answer and my, my still favorite. Um, coming soon to a concert near you. Bruce is back on tour next year, so... Uh, Maybe I'll buy some uh, big man's blaze baked goods and enjoy the show with, with all of you. You're all invited. Let's go. Let's all go together. Legal face-off road trip. The, the real question is, when are we going to see a Rich Lenkoff karaoke version of a Bruce Springsteen song posted on social media? No just... one. The answer, is, the answer is never again. Unless, like on my recent uh, you know, film, I have a couple of shots and maybe, you know, then all things are off. But Currently, no no plans. We'll 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 go off with again a shout out to the MAC champion NIU Huskies, where I went to law school. Brian Perry is the general counsel. Brian, quick prediction: NIU repeating as MAC champs. I think we repeat. What's repeat. our record? How many wins? How many wins? We going we going undefeated perhaps this year? Call us at least seven. At least seven, Joe. You heard it here first. Right. And, and hey, while we're at it, it's going to, uh, once again, NIU night at Northwestern Medicine Field, home See? of the Cougars, Thursday night, oh, August 18th. Thanks. Hopefully hopefully our uh, producers, Yvonne and Ben, can uh, get that out timely. But uh, 
Anyway, that's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag and the Legal Faceoff podcast. Big thanks to Howard and Brian for their time. Our earlier guests of Dan Lust, David Shapiro, Steve Edelman, and Alan Dershowitz. And again, another shout out to the fine work of our producers, Von Barbosa and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please do us a favor and rate it five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We will talk to you in a few weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...